doomed now. This car toppled. Buildings entirely crushed and crumbled. I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I, I really need to leave. So the fences informed me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I, I see some people running now. In the opinion of this reporter, if this nation, or in fact the world, ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now. Episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, the official podcast of AquamanShrine.net and FirestormFan.com. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag from Firestorm Fan. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the depraved Rob Kelly from Aquaman Shrine. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> uh, okay. Just okay. All I'm right. Doing as okay as I can after having just been slandered like that. Because <laughs> it's different than every other week. That's so, true. yeah. Well, depraved is a new level, though. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's true. It's true. I was pretty proud of it myself. Okay. All right, folks. We are back for another one of our review episodes. It's been a long time since we've covered an issue of Aquaman and Firestorm. Oh, uh, way too long. Two months. Two, two months. months. Two months. So we had Villains Month in the middle of that, and that was fun. But you know, now was it's it? over. Now it's time. <laughs> What's that? Was it? <laughs> I'm having fun with the. It was fun for of... some of us. It wasn't as much fun for others of us. I'm now having fun with Secret Society of Supervillains and uh, Marvel Supervillain Team Up. It's a hoot. I'm, ju- <laughs> I'm, ju- I'm just mad that I put my my 3D cover books up on eBay and nobody bought them. I'm just bitter. That's all. Aww. <laughs> World's smallest violin. Okay. So, uh, we are. Both of us are actually really excited to talk about the books today. We've got for you The Fury. A Firestorm, the Nuclear Man classic, number four from 1982. And we've also got Aquaman number 24. Oh, crap. 24? <laughs> I froze up. <laughs> I can't I stand gotta... the pressure. Oh, my God. Well, all those numbers and stuff, like the, the 23.1 and all that, that really messed me up last month. So I was having trouble thinking about this. Anyway, and then we have a whole bunch of listener feedback that we're going to cover as well for uh, some recent episodes. So, uh, we're gonna, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to jump in and do our in-stock trades uh, mention. Folks, in-stock trades is an official sponsor of the Fire and Water podcast, and we sincerely appreciate uh, their assistance and sponsorship. We, and therefore, we ask if you will please patronize their website. The in-stock trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 45% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What do you got this time, Rob? 
Uh, well, because Red Tornado plays such a large part in this episode uh, issue of uh, Firestorm, uh, I went back. <laughs> what? Nothing. <laughs> okay. Uh, since Red Tornado plays such a large role in this issue of Firestorm. Oh, I thought you said NATO. <laughs> no, Red Tornado. What? Red Tornado. These are like NATO, you know, N-A-T-O. No, like, yeah, no, what? they're not involved in this at all. It's black helicopters and stuff. No, the Red, Red, I'll speak slowly, Red Tornado <laughs> figures in so prominently in this issue of Firestorm. I went back to some Justice League that he appears in, and I picked Justice League Showcase, Volume 4, the trade paperback. Re- really? Yes. I picked the showcase from Justice League uh, also. See? There you go. There, well, that's how awesome these are. I picked Volume 4 because this features the JLA debuts of Red Tornado and Black Canary. And it reprints JLA numbers 61 through 83. Featuring work by Garden Fox, Denny O'Neill, Mike Sikowski, Dick Dillon, Sid Green, George Russis, Joe Giella. Featuring a great cover by Neil Adams of Earth 2 Superman smashing the crap out of Earth 1 Superman. Uh, black and white, <laughs> 544 pages, normally sixteen ninety nine. In stock trades price, $9.34, 45% off, sweet deal, and a whole lot of JLA fun. Man, that is awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, I picked, very similarly, Justice League of America, uh, Showcase Presents Volume 6. Now, this one covers issues 107 to 132, and just some of the cool, fun stuff in that one is you're going to get a really neat JLA, JSA, Earth X crossover, and if you're a Who's Who listener, apparently this is required reading. Uh, it's got uh, we we see the marriage of Adam Strange to the, his lovely Alana and some Kenjar Row time. Uh, there's that great cover with the tombstone of Aquaman. It says, "Here lies Aquaman." Ah, uh, one of That's my favorites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get a fun JLA JSA crossover where it's that period when Robin was wearing that crazy half Batman, half Robin costume. Yeah, that monstrosity. Yeah, I love, but I love that era because it's so kooky. Anyway, it's great stuff. You've got you know Len Wein, Den, uh, Denny O'Neill, Carrie Bates, bunch of people writing it. Dick Dillon drawing. Nick Cardi does the cover. Great stuff. Shaggy Man, Felix Faust, Eclipso, Amazo, Injustice Society. This is awesome. Anyway, uh, it is 528 pages for normally goes for $19.99. Magic 45% off discount gets you that book for $10.99. Nice. So did, didn't you say yours was uh, $10.99 also? No, it's uh, $8.99. $9.34. $9.34. I'm sorry. Okay. So pretty much together you're looking at about eh, 20 bucks ish. 20 bucks, a thousand, a thousand pages, pages <laughs> of Justice League, folks. You can't beat that. So please go outside. Uh, go outside. <laughs> please go out and uh, patronize. For God's stock- sake, you comic fans, go outside once. The sun. <laughs> anyway, uh, InStockTrades.com is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 45% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. All right. So we're going to jump into we're going to we're going to mix it up a little bit. You know, lately with the review episodes we've been doing Aquaman first and Firestorm second, we felt like, you know, it's hard to change it up. Nuclear Man up front represent. So, we're going to cover The Fury of Firestorm, The Nuclear Man number 4, uh cover dated September um 1982 and actually hit the shelves thanks to Mike's amazing world of DC comics by the way hit the shelves on June 3rd 1982 so set your way back machine folks you make it Go sound like you make it sound like it's thanks to Mike's amazing world that they hit it hit the newsstands in 1982 i apologize <laughs> mike has an amazing index and lists not only all your covers he lists the date the stuff at the shelves it's astonishing so anyway it's worth checking out and mike's a good guy so all right uh, beautiful Beautiful cover on this one. 
the the tagline above it is the Justice League battles the Fury Firestorm. So uh, you've got Firestorm actually there in the foreground defending Killer Frost. I've what? Got my, I've got my fists raised like I'm Firestorm, I'm like yeah. And swooping in to battle him is the Justice League: Wonder Woman, Superman, Zatanna, Hawkman, Red Tornado, and they're ready for a fight. And uh, and Killer Frost looks like she's enjoying it all. Covered by uh, Roderick and Giordano. <whistles> Great cover. Absolutely love it. All right, folks. So uh, getting into the story here, um, the most important thing actually that's probably worth mentioning about this book that I think everyone remembers it for is the Megaforce ad on the inside cover. <laughs> <laughs> and I only bring this up because you remember Chuck, Chuck Norris and the Delta Force? Well, somebody decided to make a bunch of money off that and made a carbon copy called Megaforce. Actually, it wasn't a carbon copy. They tried to make him look like Chuck Norris. Anyway, Megaforce, it had crazy vehicles. It was in movie theaters. It had toys. Crazy nutso stuff to appeal to kids. And uh, for some reason, I get a real kick out of that ad. I always oh, tap. I just, I, you look back on it now, and you're like, Barry Bostwick, action hero. That's just... <laughs> That's Barry Bostwick? That's Barry Bostwick. He started Megaforce. Yes, he did. Yeah, it's It's... It's movies ever the you know movies from twenty years ago. You look back and you're like, I can't believe that we thought that guy could be you know an action hero or a main you know. But yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a toy line for that for Mega Force too. Oh yeah, lots of yeah. The mayor from Spin City, crazy giant bomb, giant mega bomb. Yeah, I bet Megaforce. it was. Okay, that's not helping us with the comic. I'm sorry, no. but it is a wonderful piece of history that you can't deny. All right, so this comic, um, if you take it from a 10,000-foot level here, last issue was really about Ronnie Raymond, the teenager. Not Firestorm, but Ronnie Raymond, the teenager, his life spiraling out of control. And there was a lot of frustration, a lot of teenage angst. And at the the same time, Killer Frost, well, he was falling apart. Killer Frost was rising in power. This issue, uh, again, at the 10,000-foot level, is Ronnie Raymond trying to save the citizens of New York and – Really, uh, the stress and, and, and the frustration he's going through gets the better of him. And in the end, uh, the idea, some of the ideas involved to save the day come from Ronnie Raymond, not Firestorm. But we'll talk about that. So it's, it's, it's a good comic. It's, I, I like, I like the, the, the journey Ronnie's going through here. When you step back from all the blasts and the fire and the ice and all that and you think about what's really going on, uh, Jerry Conway was telling a, a good a lead-through line of story here. So this thing's composed of about six different scenes, 25 pages. 25 pages of comics for 60 cents, man. Can you believe it? The good old days. I tell you. Okay. Scene, uh, the comic open. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's do the credits. Writer Jerry Conway, art by Pat Broderick and Roden Rodriguez, Todd Klein on letters, of course, uh, Gene D'Angelo on colors, Len Wein editing, featuring characters created by Conway and Milgram. Ding! Um, so, it starts off Killer Frost has taken control of the city of New York. She has frozen the entire city of New York. And she's basically told Firestorm, if you don't kneel and declare me Queen of New York, I'm going to allow everyone in New York to die. Because while everyone's frozen, they're in somewhat of a suspended animation that apparently she has the ability to reverse. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but she does. So you get some great scenes of Firestorm and her talking. Essentially, she says that um, she wants Firestorm to do something for her. She, As Crystal Frost, she always felt rejected and from <laughs> by men, and she said, prove your, sort of your, your, your willingness to help me here. And uh, go find me a man. That's great. <laughs> I love this turn. It is the goofiest, nutsiest really turn. I love it. 
It really is. Yeah, so she decides that uh, yeah, the only way she's going to trust him is if he goes and gets a, a guy for her. Specifically, she wants Burt Reynolds. <laughs> and it's not really Burt Reynolds. Well, the, yeah, the DC Universe version of Burt. Right. He's called Kurt Holland, but he stars in Smokey and the Thief. And, <laughs> and he drives a Trans Am and wears oh, a Oh, Jerry Conway. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wily. We never would have guessed. Anyway, so there's some good moments with Killer Frost that I'm not going to get into here. We'll talk about some more detail when we cover the, the details of it. But she basically says, do this or I'm going to kill everyone. So he flies off and decides, I'm going to Hollywood and I'm going to go get me some Burt Reynolds and uh, save New York. <laughs> Heads off. And unfortunately, he runs headlong into the Justice League. Well, not unfortunately. Normally, that'd be a great thing. You know, there's his teammates. And they say, hey, Firestorm, don't worry. We know what's going on in New York. We're here to help. We got it. And he's like, no, you can't. You can't go in there. It's too risky. If you go in there, my family might die. And they're like, nah, we got it, kid. Trust us. Well, this is the part where I was telling you the stress and the frustration and everything builds up in Ronnie, and he loses his mind. He goes plumb loco. He does. And he attacks the Justice League. Uh, and I don't mean like he defends himself. He straight up launches into an attack. And for the record, I would like to note that Firestorm pretty much took down the Justice League single-handedly. <laughs> they, I how- mean, I mean, they were shocked. That's part of it. True. They were shocked. And a lot of it was he didn't defeat everybody. He just defeated certain people and the rest of the people were saving them. <laughs> so, but single-handedly, Firestorm, you know, was the man. Um uh, by doing the wrong thing. Anyway, um, he, they come, they, they kind of like get out of the death traps that he puts them in, and they're ready to go kick the shaz out of him. And they come up, and he's basically crying. He's, he's kind of – he's had his break, his breakdown now. And he's like, I'm sorry. I need help. Uh, this, this is out of my control. I need help. Um, and so – meaning the situation in New York. So they go to the satellite, and you have your huge triumphant moment that little Russell Burbage has been waiting for his entire life. And Firestorm reveals to the Justice League that he is, in fact, two people, Ronnie Raymond and Professor Martin Stein. Now, to me, uh, for some reason, I mentally blocked this out and didn't realize that it was this moment that they finally learned. I just thought they always knew, you know? And so Russell pointed it out to me a while ago that, uh, yeah, Firestorm never revealed his identity except to Superman. So you get Ronnie Raymond and Professor Stein on the satellite. Which is great because Professor Stein, of course, you know, he, he starts off when he comes out of the Firestorm body. He always has a little bit of amnesia. He doesn't remember the instance of Firestorm. So he's like, what are we doing here? And then when they look, he goes, I got some news for you, Professor. We're not exactly on Earth anymore. And they look out that giant awesome window and he's looking down at Earth. And um, I just love this moment because Professor Stein to me is one of my favorite heroes of this book. And this is really – you'll see as we go, this is a real opportunity for him to shine. So for a good tr- chunk of the book now, you get Ronnie and the Professor – operating in essentially a superhero capacity, but in their human guises. And you don't see that very often. Normally it's Ronnie and his professor doing their, their personal lives and they form Firestorm and superhero stuff happens. But here they are operating with the Justice League in their separate human personas. And the more I think about it, the more I really like this. So this is pretty cool. So Ronnie and uh, NATO, or Red Tornado as some people call him, yes. go off to Hollywood they find uh, Burt Reynolds in the middle of filming a new Smokey and the, the Thief movie, <laughs> driving his Corvette, doing his own stunts, no less, by the way, which I'm not sure Burt Reynolds actually does. And they go up and confront him, and they say, hey, we need your help. They explain the whole situation. and basically says, you're nuts. I'm not going – I'm an actor. I, I don't do this for real. I'm not going to go to New York and risk my life for this, Get on, especially for those New Yorkers. I love that. Somebody in Hollywood calling the people of New York weirdos. Right, exactly. And so uh, Ronnie, in a rage, kind of gets ticked off, 
and um, he's talking with with Red Tornado, and uh, so hold on, where is this here? Um, so anyway, I guess Ronnie has the idea in just a second. But um, so then we go back to the, the satellite. We see Professor Stein working on a special gadget, and this this is this is really where my where I get so excited because Professor Stein is using the Justice League lab building an awesome science gadget. If only Ray Palmer was there right next to him, that would be so. I that would have been cool, yeah. I always sort of envision that Ray Palmer, and I don't mean the atom. I mean Ray Palmer. I always envision that Ray Palmer and Professor Stein would like be buds, you know, like nerdy. <laughs> You know, professor from Gilligan's Island, buds. You know, mm-hmm. like totally uh, just hanging out and talking about this kind of stuff. And I like to think that after this moment, they did. I don't know if that's true, but in my head, they did. Anyway, so he builds this device that will freeze uh, the air around it in less than a millisecond, which is what they're going to use to defeat Killer Frost, because Killer Frost requires heat in order to continue to operate. They compare her to a refrigerator, which requires heat and energy and power. Anyway, Ronnie is the one here who has the idea. Not Firestorm, not Professor's Time, but Ron, regular teenager Ronnie Raymond is the, is the one who has the idea on how to win the day. So this is great. So they fly into, they fly, Killer Frost has had enough. She thinks Firestorm's ditched her. Ronnie, or sorry, Firestorm shows up with, lo and behold, um, Kurt Holland, you know, Burt Reynolds. He what? said no. Again. How, how could he be there? Thank you for doing the patented shag noise. <laughs> what? And, uh. So Killer Frost is totally uh, taken aback, and she swoons, grabs uh, grabs Burt Reynolds, and plants a big old frozen kiss on him, and yet he doesn't freeze. She's confused. What's going on? How can he not freeze? She blasts him, and it reveals it's secretly Red Tornado in disguise. So there's a little bit of battle between Firestorm and Red Tornado, uh, which, as always, Pat Project does a great job with. And then Red Tornado activates the super... Thermofrost freezer unit concealed in his chest. <laughs> and it freezes, uh, starts to freeze Killer Frost. Firestorm decides to help it out. He removes all the air from around her, which makes her freeze instantly, like a popsicle. Hooray! Then, he, Red Tornado is basically, as always, taken out of action almost immediately. And he's frozen solid. What are we going to do? Well, they open his chest plate. Because Professor Stein planned for this. And Ronnie pours a bunch of energy through Red Tornado. And it actually um, – yeah, I don't understand the science here. But uh, it, it puts the thermofrost in reverse. And they're forming a heat bubble over Manhattan. And the temperature goes up and the ice melts away. And all the floodwaters miraculously go into the East River. And uh, it's just like I always said, the city needs a good bath. Firestorm's a little woozy. The mayor catches him. And they make some really – um, oddly play Saturday Night Live jokes with thumbs up. <laughs> and next, the Pied Piper's Pipes of Peril. Dun, 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 dun. What a conclusion. Oh, my goodness. Got a lot of detail to talk about. But what do you think, Rob? This is my single favorite issue of Firestorm. Of any, wow! of any series, it's all downhill from here. This is, oh my, my, this is my single favorite. I bought this off the newsstand because it had just sleek on the cover. I was like, that's it. I'm going to buy it. And I I love it. I love it through and through. <laughs> you know, you are not the only one. I hear from a lot of uh, match heads, a lot of the older match heads who were out when this comic came out. They always gravitate back to this two-issue story. Because obviously it was early in the run. The comic did great when it first came out, so a lot of people were buying it. But people remember the battle with the Justice League, and they remember how Firestorm took them out. I hear it a lot. So, yeah, you're not the only one. 
So what 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 was it that you liked about the issue? Like, is there a particular piece of the story elements that grab you? Uh, well, I mean, I, I like that. Uh, well, yeah, I, I well, I mean, I said I love the JLA is in it. I think it's a perfect time that it's, it's kind of so soon into his book that they would come and sort of like get involved in his case because he's the young guy and they're like, you know, hey, you think you're out of your, you're out of your uh, league, as it were. So I like that. I like the ferocity with which Firestorm goes after them. I mean, Firestorm planting Superman in a giant kryptonite bubble is just badass. That is just great. Yeah. And there's the full page where he's whipping, he's hitting both Superman and Zatanna at the same time. And... Broderick has Superman looking really, really like, what the? And I think that's fantastic. I mean, it's like Superman just – this this point in Superman's history, he is like at his peak smugness, you know, where he could, <laughs> he could do anything, be anywhere, solve every problem. He knew everything. I mean, as you just pointed out, like he, he knew Firestorm's secret identity, but no one else did. And I just like the idea that he's taken by surprise. I, I think that's a great little detail. So uh, I like the mix of JLA characters that they brought into it. Like I like that it's the flying characters as opposed to trying to like shoehorn Batman in here. You know, like mm, in, in his bat that's jet. That's clever. You know, I mean, it's it's everybody that's that, that has some way of being out in the uh, in the sky. I love that it then that that uh, Conway telescopes it down to just being fired from a red tornado, which makes it a sort of like mini sequel to JLA 192 and 193 where their sort of beginnings of their friendship is established. So I mm-hmm. like that. I like that continuity. I love that fight that killer Frost plan is personal. Not, I want to conquer the world. It's no, I want to get a guy like it, that's crazy. That's you know, like in, in every modern movie blockbuster now, like every plot of the villain has to be like world domination because that's right. either universe domination. I like that. It's small. I like that it's a small goal. She just wants to be with this. She's like a, a love-struck teenager, and she's willing to destroy all New York City to get it. I love that idea. It's goofy. It's funny. Uh, I think it fits with her character. It, the whole issue is beautifully drawn by by Broderick. Uh, and I kind of like – I don't know. I think it's paced well. I love that the JLA is in the middle, and then they're, then they're dispatched. Everything about it. I just think it's like a – just through and through a real, a real winner. Those, that's some, <clears throat> you made a lot of really good points there and a lot of good observations. Thank you for sharing those. I like that. Uh, the, let's talk about that JLA fight real quick. You, you, you kind of you said it, real, uh, the gist of it. But, yeah, Firestorm, here, here's the deal. Basically, the, the Justice League comes up to him and says, you know, as I said, they're here to help. And he says, no, back off. I'll handle things my way. And, he says, and, and they try to get him to help. But he just loses it. He's like, no, Superman fought Killer Frost once and had his neck handed to him. You don't understand your power. People, my people could get killed. So while they're flying in the air, he creates, this is one of my favorite bits, he creates this giant steel wall between, well, it's not even that giant. It's probably, I don't know, 10 feet by 10 feet to block the, as if that's going to block the Justice League from getting to New York, right? Because they can't fly around it. And then, then he, he created a giant steel wall, you know, thousands of feet up in the air so it just falls <laughs> right away whoosh boom and it's like it's exactly what a teenager would do it's you know he put up a wall between him and other people it's exactly what teenagers do all the time it's almost it's almost metaphoric and uh, so it crashes to earth i really dig that and then they're trying to, again they're trying to help him and that's when yeah he puts superman in the kryptonite bubble he puts satana in you know i don't know what the bubble's made of i don't remember here but it's just uh it's some sort of black bubble that she, you know, is going to have a hard time casting her spells through. 
And Wonder Woman is taken out of the fight now because she's trying to save Superman. And she actually, you know, punches open the kryptonite bubble to save him. Hawkman and Red Tornado are taken out of the fight because they're trying to carry this huge, heavy ball that's uh, apparently extremely heavy. So then they're trying to save Zatanna. So all that all kind of happens all at the same time. So that was, it, was a, it was a neatly well-paced fight. And I do like that Firestorm didn't defeat each one of them. It's just that each one of them were helping each other. I thought that was clever. Mm-hmm. So now, real quickly, going back to the beginning. Um, there's a couple uh, storylines here that are, that are neat. Um, let's see. I've got to get to my pages here. Sorry. Uh, Firestorm, after that fight, when he breaks down... And he's emotionally distraught. Like, the Justice League's coming to clobber him, right? And then they come up on him, they see that he's just terribly upset, and the first words out of his mouth is, I'm sorry. So it's, it, that's a nice, tender moment. It is a little strange that the JLA sort of reverses their opinion immediately, where they're like, oh, no, Firestorm, it's we who should apologize. <laughs> this is never mind that you ju- Never mind that you just tried to kill us. This is what Zatanna <laughs> says, we forgot one of the League's most fundamental unspoken rules. The hero on the spot has primary responsibility. That's insane. That's an well, insane rule. I'm sorry. <laughs> keep in mind the level of bureaucracy that's been demonstrated in Jerry Conway's Justice League. And <laughs> this is why Aquaman disbanded this team. <laughs> it's totally, totally why. Um, going on just a page or two to where Firestorm splits and reveals himself to the Justice League. I mean, that's a huge momentic, uh, momentic moment. You know, everyone's like, whoa, Zatanna is like, the rings of Hotath. You really are a boy, much younger than I imagined. But this man beside you, you know, he's confused. <laughs> Superman there, as you said, looks incredibly smug. He's like, yeah, I knew. I totally knew. Yeah, this is, this wanna, is absolutely, yeah, the, this era of Superman is, is the omnipotent Superman. It's just yep. ridiculous. <laughs> if I was Hawkman, I would have just turned to Superman and said, you're a dick. You, well, <laughs> I'm not going to say that to Superman. Well, but that's like a total Hawkman thing he would say, though. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, Professor Stein's in awe of being up up in space is really fun. The Trans Am, I love some of the sound effects the Trans Am has. The, uh, the Burt Reynolds Trans Am. Screech, vroom, skidoo. <laughs> it actually says skidoo. That makes me happy. So, I don't know. And let's see. All right. Here's a line, a very Jerry Conway kind of line that I really dig. When they freeze Killer Frost. There's a, there's a dialogue box here. It says, Absolute Zero is about the coldest it can get here on Earth. But in, in a universe of many wonders, meaning like superheroes flying and stuff, Absolute Zero, like the velocity of light, is simply the most prov- um, provincial of physical measurements. In other words, when Reddy turns on his portable freezer, things get much colder fast. So I just like that idea that they're saying the laws of physics don't necessarily apply the same way in the DC universe. And we're just going to totally face up to that. So that makes me happy. Um, on page 24, we see um, – maybe we don't. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, when, uh, when Reddy – when Red Tornado gets the energy pouring through him and they thaw out New York, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things – you can't really see it here, but it's written in in crayon in my book. It says Doreen Day dies. Okay. Um, so I, I think she drowned. So that's that's the end of her. We won't see her again. Um, at least I wish. And then what's up with the Saturday Night Live jokes? What, what I that's out of left field. Yeah, I don't – I mean I love the fact that Red Tornado watches Saturday Night Live. I, I right. just find that very, very funny. It all starts with the mayor who says, you're brave, both of you, but Meshuggah, 
And Ronnie goes, that's us, Mr. Mayor. Just a pair of wild and crazy guys. And Ray, Ray Tornado goes, well, excuse me. Yeah, it's he's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. He's, and Ray Tornado just isn't a fan. He's a fan of early SNL because by this point, all those guys were off the show. So he's, that's he's, true. he's that's a fan true. of original cast. Ray Tornado is totally original cast SNL. Oh, yeah. OC, buddy. OC. A uh, couple of art things. You, you said it already. This book is gorgeous. I mean, this is wow. Broderick and Rodriguez, man, they are amazing at this point. In fact, uh, just a, there's a panel in this issue, uh, page three, bottom right-hand panel. It's a killer frost. She's sort of like primping her hair where she's talking about she's never had a lover or whatever. <laughs> um, for years, I attributed this panel to George Perez. I thought it was a Perez panel. It looks just like Perez's style. In fact, I put it up on Firestorm pan, fan as a Perez panel, and someone came back later and corrected me. I was like, oh, jeez. And um, – I, I just use that as an example because, you know, Perez is kind of the gold standard for this era. And uh, it's just very nice. And it's uh, a lot of really s- subtle stuff. I like it. Um, I'm sorry. The, the subtle's for my next note. I apologize. Uh, on page five, it shows all the frozen people in New York. They're sort of covered in sort of snowy essence and stuff. Anyway, it's 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 a nice moment because that that's where the subtle is. I apologize. It's sort of subtle. It's not like in your face, but you see them in the background. They're clearly frozen but you can sort of still make them out. I'm pretty sure that is Doreen actually in that page, and I wish that billboard had fallen on her and killed her. But um, it's just interesting that, I don't know, I just I don't know, it, I just really like the way it looks. I guess that's what it is. I don't know what art is, but I know what I like. There you have it. So I hate the moment where Killer Frost kills that bird. That bothers me. Because the bird looks silly, or she didn't like, you don't like the murder? No, that she kills the bird. I don't like that. That's that's the perfect sign in every comic of of the villain killing an uh, instant. I know, animal. I understand the point of it. I'm just, I just like it. <laughs> now look a couple panels above that on page six, the top left hand panel where she's just sitting on the edge. There's mm-hmm. something sexy and cute and casual and alluring about yeah, that. Yeah, it's panel. a little coy. It's a little coy. Yeah, that's probably know. the word I'm looking for, but I'm not that smart. Um, yeah, it just kind of it's like mm, I like that. Mm-hmm. So, and let me tell you. Seeing this, did, did Broderick ever draw the JLA in, like, the JLA book? Uh, no. Yeah, he would have been good at that. I mean, looking at these pages, he really, you know, this is the first time he drew them. Imagine if he'd been drawing them for a few issues and got some practice under his belt. He would have done a great job with the JLA book. I mean, I'm glad he stayed on Firestorm, but, you know, that's that, that was sort of a missed opportunity. Um, yeah, that's really all the, the highlights I have on this issue. Great comic. Very enjoyable. Again, it's a journey of Ronnie going from his life out of control. The breaking point is when he loses it on the Justice League. I mean, it's really for two issues he's been building up. Loses his crap on the Justice League as Firestorm. And then it's really Ronnie Raymond and his human guys that figures out um, how to finish implementing the plan and save the day. So it makes me very happy that Ronnie Raymond and Professor Stein in their human forms are who save the day and not Firestorm. Yeah. Yeah, it's again. It's nice to have the heroes think their way out of something, as opposed to just, you know, being like find a way to overpower them with their giant powers. They actually right. overthink it, so it's nice. Cool, great comic. So thank you for letting me wax on about it. I just it makes me so happy. So yeah, it's, next, it's a load of fun. It's a load of fun. Next issue, we get Pied Piper. Going to be good stuff. Looking uh, forward I'll to it. Take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, you'll find out in a month. <laughs> He's got crazy legs. That's all I'll say. Okay. So, 
All right. Up next, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we're going to cover Aquaman number 24. Yes, Take it away, Bob. Yes, that is uh, Aquaman number 24. It's been two months since we've seen Aquaman, unfortunately. This is Death of a King, uh, Chapter 6. Uh, from all of you – well, anyway, first of all, the cover by Paul Pelletier and Rod Reese and Tron Parsons is great. I love the cover. I really, really do. It's very iconic. Uh, Aquaman is sort of sporting a little sort of, you know, a mix of like all of his different looks in a lot of ways. He's got a beard, but he's bare chested, but then he's got his sort of classic pants on. He's a little bit of everything. I really, really like it. I think it's a very, 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 very nice cover. Um, it opens up with a, a little flashback to, um, how Tom Curry met, uh, Atlanta. Um, it's funny. We see her, uh, show up. She's kind of like dressed in an Aquaman-esque uniform. Which, I don't know how much I'm a fan of, but okay. We see her showing up at a rescue Tom Curry, and that's the whole setup for that. Um, and then we cut up, to, we, we cut back to today, where when we last we saw Aquaman, he's in that tent with Volko, and it's been six months. He's been asleep for six months. And, uh, of course, he's a little upset. Where is Mira? And then Volko says, I don't know. The last time I saw her in Atlantis face-to-face with the dead king, Aquaman's like, well, where am I? And they see that we are in Antarctica. Uh, they are away from everywhere. It's re- vaguely reminiscent of the little cabin that uh, Walter White found himself in in the final episodes of Breaking Bad, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Volko, looks, looks, a, looks a little bit like New York when Killer Frost got to it. <laughs> uh, Volko explains that the truth of everything Aquaman needs to know about his past is down in this crater, Aquaman goes in there, and then we have this very, uh, we see the um, big throne room of Atlantis, and there's these giant statues with all their scepters and stuff leaning over it. Aquaman sits in it, and then this sort of bubble of ice forms around him. It takes control of him, and we are then plunged into a long flashback where we see what happened in terms of how Atlantis came, came to be ruled by, uh, well, what we initially think are Orm's ancestors. And it's the the king is Atlan and his wife, who looks a lot like Mira, and his two children. And then we see that the throne has been usurped by his brother, uh, Orin, by force. And there's lots of dead guys laying around. They get into this fight. The uh, Atlan sends his family off to hide while uh, he fights Orin. Oh, God. All right. Uh, <laughs> I lost track. I'm sorry. So anyway, um, he then fights off Orin, disappears. He goes to the rendezvous point to meet his family, and his family are not there. But instead is a giant pool of blood. Not good. Turns out that they are all dead. Atlan uh, prepares himself, returns. Or takes a couple of uh, – how long does it take? It takes him a little while, a couple of weeks or something like that, to return to Atlantis. He has a <laughs> powerful um, – I think it was a couple of years. I know, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so anyway, he returns. He has the giant power scepter. He uh, smashes Atlantis with with the scepter that we saw that Orm Ocean Master was using in the previous issues of Aquaman. It shatters pretty much all of Atlantis in a very, very pretty two-page spread uh, by, again, by Pelletier and Sean Parsons and Rod Reese, where we see the entire city of a country or whatever you, whatever you want to call it of Atlantis cracking in two bunch of it sinks into the water and it turns out it says it turns out the seven kings of atlantis broke apart four of them were lost only three survived and to survive the beings of these kingdoms evolved 
and that means that uh, one of those uh, people, one of the group people, turned out to uh, be the trench. Oddly enough, mm-hmm. Aquaman smashes through the this little ice thing. He can't believe the truth, and it's revealed by Volko that Aquaman is in fact not the descendant of Atlan. He is the descendant of Orin. Dun dun dun. So yeah, so he is in fact. Not really. I mean, he is sort of the heir to the king, but he's the you know heir to the king who usurped the throne. So in terms of royal blood, he is actually not the king of Atlantis. So the book ends with Volko saying, Atlan was once a great hero of the world, and the ancestors were the and your ancestors were the villains." And it says, "To be concluded in Aquaman number twenty-five." Uh, yeah. Uh, I wasn't that thrilled with this issue. Um. As you talked about with the Firestorm thing, I'm going to kind of pull back on a macro level. And I see this whole storyline kind of – I mean, look, it's not over yet. And we – you know, it, it's easy to jump the gun and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm upset about this because I don't like what I'm saying. Kind of like what we did with, with when we thought uh, Jeff Johns killed off the crime syndicate Aquaman. You know, we got okay. really upset about that and it turned out he didn't. Oh, I got a, I got a thought on that. Okay. Jeff Johns isn't the one who's bringing him back. It's uh, Jam DeMattis or okay. Jim DeMatteis. So I still might hold to my theory okay. on Jeff Johns. Well, anyway, my my I guess what I'm trying to get at here to me is like I don't – I look at this and say is this trip completely necessary? I mean to me, what does it add to our understanding of this character that his family are the descendants – are not – the actual descendants of the throne. I mean, so what? I mean, I I, I read this issue and I was like, I I, I kind of don't care. I don't care about Atlantis. I don't care what happened thousands of years ago. I again pulling back pull, pulling back in the in the macro sense. You know, Jeff Johns has one issue left to this book, and so far, Aquaman and Mira have gone on essentially one adventure together in twenty five issues, which was the trench storyline. Then they got really? wrapped up in the others thing, and then there was the throne of Atlantis thing, and then there was this thing, and it's like I don't, I, again, I, I don't, uh, I don't want to be super harsh about it, but I, you know how, like the internet, it's filled with these articles, and you probably notice them where the headline is meant to be like a grabber, where it's somebody who takes something and flips it, and it's like you know twenty reasons why the Wizard of Oz is the worst movie ever. It's you know it, it's meant to generate clicks. It's and it's it's sort of articles meant to just flip what you think you know on your head. You know everything you learned in history class was wrong. Everything you know this is why World War Two was this. This is why blah 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 blah. Uh, you know why Back to the Future Three is the best of the sequels. That kind of thing. And why I, why Indiana Jones was in, ineffectual in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Kinda yeah. It's like it, it's it's meant to take a perceived thing that everyone quote unquote agrees on. And subverts it. And it's meant to draw right. clicks. It's meant for you to go, what? You know, let me see what yeah. this, this is about. To me, this is what this headline is. This is, ooh, what if Aquaman was not the royal blood of Atlantis? Isn't that interesting? No. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's not. It's not terribly interesting. Well, this goes back to my prediction um, a couple issues ago. Uh, I don't know if you recall, we talked about this when we, when we first started hearing murmurs about you know what? Uh, who who's the rightful king of Atlantis? And I made my prediction that uh, Arthur is not uh, of the royal bloodline. I was right. 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 And 
And I said, who was? You thought Mira was, yeah. Mira. And now if you look at Atlan's wife, it's pretty good guess is what they're trying to hint to us is that, yeah, Mira is of the right – is of the of the bloodline of Atlan. So maybe part of what this issue is setting us up is freeing Aquaman up from his obligation to Atlantis but sticking Mira there. Maybe so. And and, and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm trying to not be super harsh about it. I just – I I just can't help but think it feels like Johns did so much. And look, hey, as we've talked about before, I still say Jeff Johns is the number one most influential creator of Aquaman since the guys that created him. Uh, to me, no, he has done more for this character than any other single creator, and he deserves every bit of praise that he and 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 you know thanks for what he did for the character. But I look at it and say he wrote this character for two years, and he made every effort in the beginning to reestablish him as a superhero, put him in the superhero world, and then right after that, just didn't do any of that. Like we had, we've had so little of Aquaman and Mirror going off being superheroes that I just feel like what? Yeah. You well, know? if you're gonna if you're gonna do that, you you kind of actually almost have to say he's written Aquaman for four years. Um, Blackest Night and Brightest Day. Well, as well, but he was in it. A, they they were part. They were smaller parts in a bigger. But, you know, in a bigger. Well, in Brightest Day, universe. it would qualify. I mean, if you took all the okay. Aquaman all segments right, well, out, right. you'd have a few issues of a com- of comics. Yeah, that's true. I, I just, uh, I, I he's just, been the he's been the shepherd of Aquaman for. Yes, years. yes, and it said he without him, Aquaman would probably still be dead in the DC universe because that's where he was before. Um, but I, I just. Reading a whole issue in Atlantis just made me just kind of go, Ugh, you know, like I, I want to see him. And it also bothered me on a fundamental level that when he yells, "Where is Mira?" and Volko's like, "I don't know. I left her in Atlantis face to face," and Aquaman then doesn't just leave right then and there to go find Mira. I mean, I know that he's in the middle of nowhere and he's in his bandages and he doesn't have any shoes on and whatever. But I just, to me, it's like. He he doesn't know where Mira is. As far as he knows, Mira is under the under the thumb of the the dead king. And instead, he's going to go into this crevice and do all this stuff for Volko, who has lied to him throughout this whole time. You know, it just I don't I, I, don't, I don't have as many problems with that as as you do. Like I feel like he did the Volko thing because Volko said you're going to get your answers down there. And ultimately, he needs answers to figure out how to defeat the king and get his wife back. So right. I, I I buy that he went down there. Um, Volko's been so trustworthy to this point. Well, I do. I, I've come up with a new nickname for Volko. You know, like some people have. You know, um, you know, Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas, right? Volko should now going forward be called Super Stalker to the Stars, <laughs> because you really, if you listen to what Volko's saying, he's pretty creepy. He's like, "Hey, I watched you sleep for six months." <laughs> you know, ooh, creepy. Um, you know, that, that time after time, he just keeps saying all these things like, Aquaman, I think you're great. I'm doing all this stuff for you. It's like, dude, back off. Seriously. Restraining order. Um, if I take this issue by itself, I actually don't have as much of a problem with it. But if I look at it in the, in the whole tapestry of the Aquaman run, yeah, there's a lot of other things that could have happened this issue. And if I look at it in the whole tapestry of Aquaman history, I got to sit there. In, in wonder about one of my favorite series, which is the Atlantis Chronicles. And if, again, folks, we've talked about it before. If you've never read Atlantis Chronicles, pause the podcast right now. 
go to, I don't know, Mile High Comics. I don't care. Go to your local comic shop, whatever, and get Atlantis Chronicles. It's a, what, seven-issue miniseries? Yep, seven. Seven double-issue miniseries. So good. Incredible. Aquaman's not even in it until, like, the last page. But yeah. it's <laughs> so, so good. An incredibly and, uncommercial project that DC actually published. It's pretty amazing. And it's, it's, it's like Dallas underwater. I mean, it's, it's, it's so Game good. of Thrones. It's Game of oh, Thrones. Oh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Everything's that with you. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to market it so people could get excited about it. It's using a contemporary reference. You made fun of me for Simpsons references. You're referencing Dallas. Uh, it's Game of Thrones. It's Game of Thrones All underwater. Right. You can't. Yeah. Well, well, two of the major characters in it is Atlan and Orin. And you heard those names again here today. Right. As uh, various kings of Atlantis. So I, I'm struggling whether this comic is an homage to Atlantis Chronicles, because you have, you know, it's the history of Atlantis, how it sank, and it's got Atlan and Orin. Or is this spitting in the face of Atlantis Chronicles, because you've got Atlan and Orin, and they're completely different characters. And Orin, which was the name of Aquaman, uh, Arthur Curry in the pre-Flashpoint history, his real name was Orin. Um, this Orin appears to be a bastard. So is this... Doing more spitting on Peter David, you know. I don't think it's meant as that. I think he's, I think John's is just taking flipping all the, the history. Yeah, all the history that was left to him and just using it in his own devices, which is fine. It's just totally fine. I just, I just, I don't like the flipping for the sake of flipping. Yeah, I mean, it was on. He could have used the characters' names and stuff without. I mean, fine, whatever. If he wants the two kings fighting each other, that's his prerogative. But, but to purposefully use the names and flip them and turn a good name to a bad name and stuff like that, it's just like, ah, I don't you know, know, you know what? You brought up Atlantis Chronicles, and that makes me think of something. Is I love Atlantis Chronicles. I think it's a great series. I agree with you. I think it's beautifully drawn by, um, oh, uh, Esteban Roto. Yes. But, uh, but, uh, but I, I love it. I think it's a great series. I love it as a backstory. But. DC published it as its own separate miniseries, not as seven issues of Aquaman. And if I had if I had read Aquaman and had to sit through seven months of no Aquaman while I read while I heard all this fight, that would have annoyed the living hell out of me. They yeah. knew they knew enough to be like, no, 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 it's its own thing. Let's put it off to the side. And if you want to read it, you can read it. But if you don't, you don't have to. I I just again I'm like you know I think I say this like every episode since they started doing it, but it's just. I waited so long for there to be art, classic Arthur Curry, classic Aquaman and Mira back, and it seemed like Johns was just totally saying we're going to shake all this, all these barnacles off and make them classic superheroes again, and he did it, and then he got rid of it almost instantly. And I just, I just like, and so from what I'm hearing about what Jeff Parker wants to do is Jeff Parker wants to bring more of the fun back and make it a little more of a superhero book, and I hope that's what he does, because I think that's what people want to see. I think, uh, on the art-wise, I think Paul Pelletier is getting better every single month. I think this was his best issue so far. And so I would, I'd be interested to see Parker and Pelletier, which sounds like a law firm again, uh, <laughs> like, have them get a definable run on the book. You know, Parker and uh, Pelletier here was sort of, on the John's era, sort of, you know, cleaning up after, I don't want to do that. That's probably not the right phrase to use, but you know what I mean? He's taking over for the boys and, you know, he's still doing John's stuff. It'd be interesting to see him and Parker together as their own team. And I hope that Parker returns to some of the fun. Cause like I said, it's like, I, I, Mira, he made, John's made Mira such a great character. He did such, so much with her, 
brought her into the book, and now she's been gone for almost, like, she's barely been in the book for almost a year. Yeah, she's been sidelined quite yeah. a bit. So it's like you had all this potential, and then you got bogged down with the, the, the throne again. It's like, enough with the friggin' throne! <laughs> you know, you know if you, I, I haven't re-listened to our early episodes, primarily because the sound of your voice grates on my nerves, but I bet if we were to go back and listen, there is commentary from us about saying the way to do an Aquaman comic right is keep him on the surface. Don't keep him underwater for too long. Yeah. And sure enough, since uh, the Throne of Atlantis story, which was great, that's pretty much where he's been, has been underwater. And we said, don't get bogged down in the politics of Atlantis. Yeah. But yeah. And that's, you know, that's interesting. Now, I'd like to, you know, you talk, you brought up Pelletier's art. I want to go through the book a little bit, if you don't mind. Because um, while I struggle with some of the story elements, the art, there's some really cool stuff I want to talk about in this, if you don't mind. Sure. You know, I don't, actually, I do care. I don't care if you mind. I'm going to do it anyway. Oof. Well, you know, yeah. Um, starting off right on page one, you mentioned, at, um, I'm sorry, uh, Arthur's mom. Mm-hmm. First of all, she's hot. Uh, second of all, that interesting costume you mentioned where it's almost like an Aquaman costume, that, if you look at it, that's all Rod Reese, man. I mean, quite honestly, the way Pelletier drew it, she, I think, is naked. Uh, well, look maybe. at the way, yeah, look at the, way the hair very carefully is covering yeah. the breasts. I think he intended for her to be naked, and I think Rod Reese came in here and gave her some kind of outfit. I will have to ask Rod that. You should. I yeah. will ask him that. Well, you should all ask Paul, too, because yes, Rod sir. may be like, well, this is how I interpret it. So, um, The second page is a really interesting shot of, like, Aquaman. It's sort of like the Aquaman family, if you will, nowadays, because mm-hmm. it's, it's Aquaman on the throne. But in no way that I've ever seen him. I mean, certainly not in the New 52. Right. I mean, he's got the beard with the mandarin collar and the helmet and a bunch of armor. I mean, this is not an Aquaman we've ever seen, is it? Not as far as I know, no. I mean, thank God Merc's here. Well, yep, you got Merc, you got Tula, you got uh, Skitter. Abe Sapien, yeah. Yeah, right, thank you. Uh, you've got um, Urn, the general mm-hmm. that I like mm-hmm. that died. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's a – and you got um, Topo in the background. So it's a nice, it's a nice shot. It's it's a little more, uh, almost like a poster, like an idealistic. This should be the Aquaman world, but it's not because we've never seen it. So it was, it was worth seeing. King Aquaman set in the future, like King Conan. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. Now let's go to the double page spread, the the splash page where it's got the credits and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't have page numbers on this, but mm-hmm. um, where it's got the six figures holding up their claws or tridents or whatever over where the dead king was imprisoned. Mm-hmm. Do you take a good look at that page, just out of curiosity? I think what we're seeing are like six representative cultures or something from Atlantis. You've got the guy in the far left who's wearing, by the way, a fisherman, like Aquaman's villain, the fisherman. He's wearing a fisherman hat. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Interesting. Well, they, well they, he talks about the seven, kingdom, the seven kingdoms of Atlantis. Right. So maybe, I guess the dead king was the seventh? I guess so. So, so you get the, the fisherman, which is a nice nod to the fisherman. I wonder if they're going to do anything with that. You get a girl who's sort of like a, a, a mixture, I would say, between Yawara and Mera. You Just some dude, whatever. Um, then you get another dude who's clearly holding Aquaman's trident. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that Aquaman's trident? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. Then you have a, a, a trench. 
And then you've got a, a WTF, uh, Mighty Morphin Beetleborg, I think, or something. I don't know quite what that is, but uh, some sort of insoic, insectoid creature. So I just there with this one page alone, like it, it sparks so many ideas in my head of these seven different kingdoms of Atlantis and the battles they would have, and, and the treaties, and having to come in together to defeat the dead king. It's like actually, this page really energizes me and excites me tremendously. So I wonder how much of that is John's and how much is Pelletier. But man, I love I really love this page. That's all you got for me. <laughs> what do you want me to say? It's your book, man. What the hell? I, anyway. I told you what I thought. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh I've told you how the Atlan and Orman stuff really gets under my skin. Um it is very Game of Thrones, you're right. And it's very bloody and gory. Let's see, there there's something Oh, you noticed uh the weapons he made. He, uh, Atlan spends a, a year, a couple years, uh, in exile, and he makes all of the artifacts for that become the other's weapons. Mm-hmm. You see, right, the, the chain, helmet. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. You see, uh, Man of War's gauntlets. You see the weird little fish thing the future lady saw. You know, uh, I wonder if, like, you know, and I guess he, the weird thing is he makes those weapons, but he doesn't deck himself out in all of them. Like, you would think he, he would deck himself out in all these weapons and attack Atlantis, but instead he sort of just, like, I guess he puts them in, um, like, at a footlocker at a train station or something. <laughs> I don't really know where he, what he does with it, but I get the sense that Orin's wife is supposed to be meaningful to us, but I don't get it. I don't, I can't tell if it's just hinted or maybe it's a foreshadowing, but it seems like the way they've, they've introduced Orin's wife, I feel like she should be important, but I don't get it. Oh. I hate that bit of dialogue where... He's fighting, and, and uh, the wife is there, and he's like, he's telling her to leave. And he's like, go, Salah, get the children. Meet me where I first took your hand. It's like, oh, God, really? Is that how you would talk? I mean, I... Well, it's in code, so no one else knows where she went. No, I know that, but it's yeah. awfully poetic for somebody who's fighting for his life. <laughs> just... True, but it's supposed to be, you know, okay. the old days. People right. were different back then. Oh, I see. Okay. Anyway. Um, the last thing I will mention art-wise that I loved is, I'm guessing this was Rod Reese, but in the all the Atlantis flashback sequences, the panel borders are all kind of a sepia-toned parchment paper color. Oh, which yeah. I think was a very, very nice little effect. Not pretty subtle, you know, um, overall. I, I really like that. I'm going to assume that was Rod as well, but that was that was really beautifully done. Actually, and you can see the transition on one of the pages where the shattering leads to modern day. And yeah, like, it gets a wider and wider, yeah, down yeah, to the trench. So, yeah, very, very nice. Pretty, pretty cool. Yep. All right, yep. Well, that's just, that, that's all the main stuff I want to mention. I mean, there's just there's some really neat touches in there that I really dig. And um, now I will tell you, I, I felt like the comic was really, really short. Like I was reading it. <laughs> I was reading it, Aquaman burst out of the ice, and I'm like, okay, here we go. Where's Aquaman going next? <laughs> All right, going to going to next issue. Going what? To next issue. Yep, Man, it's eighteen pages. It's an eighteen page book. Yeah. Well, it's more than eighteen pages. You got some double page spreads in there, but I think. Well, or no, it's not, is it? Hold on. <laughs> Holding. Yeah, there's some double page spreads in here. It's more than eighteen pages. So. All right. Well, so still. it's twenty pages. Okay. It's like, like normal twenty yeah. page comic. Okay. So. Yeah. Again, I don't mean to be super harsh. I just, I just feel like John's. Was, was setting us up for something really cool and fun and hadn't been done in a while, and then we just got dragged back down to this whole fight over Atlantis. And I just didn't – I just didn't see – I just don't see why. I don't see why we had to bother with it. I, I just don't – I don't – you know, maybe Mira – maybe Shag will be right and Mira will be installed as the queen, but I don't want to see Mira stuck in Atlantis either. 
I don't want to see anybody stuck in Atlantis. I don't want to see Atlantis. <laughs> I, I, you know, I just I want to see them up on the surface in the lighthouse and kicking butt and poor Salty has been starving to death and everything else. So, you know, um, you know. oh, by the way, when I ran into Rod Reese at the New York Comic Con, he explained to me that uh, Jeff Johns had a theory about, he said on a podcast or something, who's been feeding Salty all this time. Oh, really? I haven't heard that, but he said he does have an answer that somebody's been feeding Salty, so that's good. Salty's, but, How you know, funny. Poor dog. He misses his parents, you know? It's he's, Volko. That's psycho. Well, it's not Volko because he's here. Now he's, he swims up every day. Oh, do, oh I see. Okay. So he's anyway, a super stalker. <laughs> anyway, next month is is John's final issue for, of the Aquaman series, at least, and then Parker takes over. So, you know, I, I'm excited to see where it goes. Uh, let's just let's get out of Atlantis, <laughs> please. <laughs> let's get out of Atlantis. All right. So, All right. Okay. That's yes. Yeah, so that's Aquaman number twenty four. Uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to do some listener feedback. The much demanded listener feedback. Woohoo! Alright, see you in a minute, guys. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to, from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But from Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it .com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman, one half month at a time, every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> no. No, no, that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. 
That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? All right, folks. We're back from break, and now it's time for... Listeners Feedback! And like our previous review episodes, it's going to be sort of a truncated version of feedback. It's not going to be the whole full-blown. We're not covering everything, every mention, folks. That will come in time, I promise. But right now what we're going to do is we're going to hone in on the feedback specific to our previous review episodes, that being the ones where we covered Killer Frost, Black Mana, and Ocean Master. Those are our most recent um, review episodes. So we're going to focus in on that feedback that we got um, through you know, uh, comments on the blogs, emails, things like that. So, and there's a great batch of it here. I mean, even with just being the reviews, it's 12 pages long. You guys are great. By the way, if you're going to be out on the social medias uh, talking about Fire and Water Podcasts, we'd really appreciate if you'd use the hashtag PoundFWPodcast. Again, this PoundFWPodcast for Fire and Water Podcasts. That will help uh, all of us uh, match heads and aquanauts uh, find each other. And together, we're nuclear subs. <laughs> All right, uh, out of the gate, Siskoid came to my defense and said symbology is a word. So I, I had said, I had made a reference to one of the podcasts saying symbology, and someone said that wasn't a word. And thank you, my good Canadian friend, although it could be a Canadian dictionary. Maybe it's not really an English word. I don't know. But here it does, in fact, say symbology is the art of expression by symbols. There it is, black and white. It's got to be true. Next up, uh, Kyle Benning. Heard from him. Uh, he talked about Villains Month. He said, Villains Month. Ugh, not my taste. Looking back at the previous clashes between the Crime Syndicate and the JLA, such as JLA Volume 1, number 29 and 30, DC Presents, wow, these are very specific, uh, DC Presents Annual Number 1, or Morrison and Quietly's JLA Earth 2 graphic novel, the clash was always exciting and interesting because the heroes of the Justice League or the Justice Society were very much polar opposites of the evil CSA. However, with the current state of DCU and its heroes, especially coming out of Trinity War, where some of them acted less than heroic, I think the clash and the dynamic between CSA and JLA is missing some of its gravitas. Superman snaps, snaps people's necks. Batman's at an all-time high of his broodiness and paranoia. And the Justice League portrayed by Jeff Johns in the JLA Justice League title. Key there, Justice League book. Versus, there's a key there. He's talking about the Justice League book versus their individual titles. Uh, is that the heroes, except for Barry, come across very cold and almost arrogant jerks. My view of the current Justice League is that they're much more in line with their animated Justice Lords counterparts. So some of the effect of the, whoa, the crime syndicate is evil versions of our do-gooder heroes, that, that's lost. It's just to my two cents on the, and view on it. Definitely not my comic book joy. So I'll stick to past incarnations of the CSA and their encounters with the heroes of the Justice League and Justice Society and All-Star Squadron. If people out there are enjoying the Forever Evil storyline, that's good. The CSA is a great team made up of some great characters, and it's great to see them discovered and enjoyed by new generations. And then uh, he, he made a comic because we did listener feedback. He said, yay, listener feedback, and a shout-out to Composite Superman as well. I feel like the Composite Superman is going to be the fire and water. It's going to be... Fire and water at what Matt Damon is as a guest of the Jimmy Kimmel show. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. I like that. Thank you, Kyle Benning. Uh, uh, yes. Heard from uh, heard from Luke Giaconetti. He said that he now he take a different view. He enjoyed a lot of the uh, Villains Month stuff. He said I did want to mention that all the Villains Month books that I've read so far, Gorilla Grodd, and he called out a couple: Gorilla Grodd, 
Two-Face and the Creeper were all strong to excellent comics, which I've read more than once apiece. I've also really really enjoyed The Trinity War and thought the first issue of Forever Evil was a blast. If that means I'm a bad fan now because I (gasps) gasp am enjoying the stuff DC's putting out, so be it. I stopped giving you a rat's you-know-what about that a long time ago. Hmm. All right. He's got, a, he's got a mention here about Baltimore, about cons. You want to do that bit? Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, Baltimore Comic Con sounded like a blast. Rob's description of the show being first and foremost about comic books reminds me of my personal favorite show, Heroes Con, up in Charlotte. It's not as massive as some other East Coast shows, but there's a very strong focus on comics as well as making the show family-friendly, which I really enjoy. Yes, I've heard a lot of good things about Heroes Con. I've always wanted to go to Heroes Con. It's about the same time as Dragon Con, though, so I just really haven't been able to make both work. So I think if sounds... there was ever a Fire and Water meetup, it would probably have to be there, because I think that's the midpoint between where you are and where I am. It pretty much is. Yeah. So, And careful, you're planting the seed in little Russell Burbage's head. Yeah, I know. I know. We're not really <laughs> going to do it, so, you know, it's just whatever. Right. <laughs> then we heard from Diablo Frank. <laughs> 16 uh, juicy comments here. Uh, I was going to cherry pick a couple. Did you want to grab a couple as well? Uh, I'll read this one. He says, I've commented on this before, but I have to draw up my stern voice and browbeat, misspelled beat, Rob over his (laughs) distasteful lack of periodical fortitude. Maybe there's an element of reverse psychology Rob is trying to employ to guilt readers into sticking with Jeff Parker like a Jewish matriarch, but oi, gewalt! The previous Aquaman volume survived an aimless, joyless, premature launch and lipped along for nearly five years as a consistent low seller. The most recent numbers of Aquaman is DC's number 11 title, among readers already acclimated to Paul Pelletier replacing Ivan Reese. Jeff Parker is a very fine choice for a replacement writer, and the character has been embraced by new fans, so let's give the man the courtesy of starting his run for gnashing our teeth and rending our garments. Personally, I'd be dancing a jig if that creative team launched a book about my character. I totally agree, and I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just trying to be what I think is realistic. I think I agree, Frank, that Aquaman in the previous series did limp along. But I also believe that DC is in a different place, and the, we've got somebody running DC who comes from the movie TV world. I forget that woman's name, but it's uh, – is it uh, – I forget her name. But anyway, she her, – Her name's Dan Didia. No, no, no. The, <laughs> the, the, the woman above Dan Didia who's like running yeah, DC. Know. And she comes from their entertainment background, their, their, their movie department. And so I think that's – she has no background in publishing or comics or anything like that. So I think that you know it's pretty clear that they are looking at all these things as properties, and I think that there's probably a much uh, there's much less room for books to quote unquote limp along uh, the way uh, they used to. I mean, look at Firestorm. Firestorm got you know to twenty issues, nineteen. What was it? Nineteen twenty. Well, technically twenty one if you count zero. All right, twenty one issues and then out. So I, you know, again, I'm not trying to be like Debbie Downer here. I'm just saying that I think a lot of I'm just responding to what I saw on the internet. There were a lot of doofus fans that are like, the minute they heard Johns was leaving, they were dropping the book. There was a lot of that. And so that's my concern. But yes, I'm very excited about it and I'm going to promote it as best I can. And I hope it's a real success. I really do. And, you know, but so I'm, I'm not, no reverse psychology intended, Frank. Well, it's kind of in line with that. It's all kidding aside, Slipknot's time is now as part of the New 52. A dude who lynches people as a standard method of operation is so very to Dio. Uh, we talked about uh, Jeff Johns versus Peter David and their contributions to Aquaman. He said there's no argument that Jeff Johns did more for Aquaman than Peter David. 
Um, there's a good example of Frank being wrong. Anyway, I was disappointed in both their runs and dropped them. But John's at least restored the Sea King as a classic superhero in the upper hierarchy of his team and sales. Pad, which is Peter David, sold Aquaman out as a grim and gritty golden mullet for chump change, doubling down on the damage already dealt the character by Keith Giffen. David's castle was built on sand, which contributed to the book's inability to survive his departure. Every creator that followed wasted a substantial portion of their run, quote-unquote, fixing what Peter David had done, whereas John's wisely cleared the decks with brightest day and moved forward. Yep. Wow. Um, there's a bit here I, I kind of dig. You've got to think this through, though. A pet peeve of mine, the New 52 has been a radically alteration of Bronze Age incarnations of legacy characters. It's like we've already had three separate secret identities for, Cheetah, for the Cheetah concept. Why create a second version of Barbara Minerva when you can just build a new character under that brand? I favored Louise Lincoln over Crystal Frost, but this is a brand new Killer Frost, so let it be Caitlin Snow. Let us progress instead of hollowing the same ground trod by Mork and Mindy, the Bee Gees, and men wearing short shorts with knee socks. I think Sterling Gates' new origin is very timely with the horrors inflicted upon female contractors protected by legal ambiguity and corporate amorality well documented. I really like Tony Daniels' cover, especially the face. A rare thing. That lame costume has got to go, though. It would be neat to have her embrace her geekiness, proxy vengeance for online t- talking points, instead of remaining poison ivy on ice. I never felt like Black Man's murder of Arthur Jr. was adequately addressed, so his viability benefited from the new 52. Unfortunately, I'm already over him again. He just won't go away long enough to be missed. I agree with that. <laughs> that said, he's been one of the darkest and most brutal villains in DC Comics, dating back to at least the 70s, so I figure he can chop people up without raising eyebrows. I don't mind gore if it's appropriate to the book character. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, yeah. think I talked about... Um... I shared a little bit of my of, of truth in my life where I, I I had some problems growing up being picked on for liking comic books and stuff. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But he had a line here. It's good. He said, cute young women compliment my comic-themed shirts whenever I'm out and about. The shame ends with after our generation. Yay. I hope so. Oof. Let's get past this. Now, uh, I got a comment here that really sparked off a huge conversation. He said, Earth 2 Chris and Michael Bailey have a different perspective on sympathetic villains than myself. I love it when a bad guy has a believable motivation and is presented as a flawed human being because it makes them more interesting as characters and embraces the complexity of their conflict with the hero. The breakdown is when they cross the line to become anti-heroes, which overshadows the actual hero and corrupts the narrative. Too often, publishers confuse popularity with starring viability, and then the 90s happen. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Count Druncula, which is Ryan Daly, came back and said, uh, I would say, and then Marvel happens instead of in the 90s happen. I firmly believe their philosophy is, quote, since every character is someone's favorite, every character is worthy of a series. And that just ain't so. I love Submariner. He's one of my favorite Marvel characters, but he's not a headlining hero or anti-hero. He's a foil. I'm not interested in Namor's adventures. I'm interested in how the Fantastic Four are affected by him. Then we get a counterpoint from Kyle Benning. He says, sorry, Count Druncula, but I disagree. As a Namor fan, I definitely think he can support his own series, and it can be darn good. Check out Burns' run of the character. It was awesome and proof that it is not only a Namor can support his ongoing series, but it can be one of the best that Marvel produces. I agree with Frank. I think Namor is easier to write and approach than Aquaman. While Arthur may be king of Atlantis, he still has to answer to the Justice League and their code of ethics. Namor doesn't. He can actually rule Atlantis and strike back at the surface war, uh, at the surface war when they strike and impede 
upon his sovereign kingdom. And since he's the resident a-hole of the Marvel Universe, you never know how far he'll go. And this keeps going back and forth for a while. It's pretty interesting. Siskoi chimes in and says that jerks make good protagonists. He loves real docs. He's a real manipulative bastard. Um, Luke Giaconetti came in and brought up, he said, um, let's see. I remember how bad I felt at the end of Black Knight. All fist pumps and yeah and all that over the return of the Hawks, Aquaman and Mera, and the Martian Manhunter. And I remember how I felt at the end of Brightest Day. All fist pumps and yeah and all that once again. Now that John's, uh, now that John's Tomasi and company had reestablished all the basic B-list characters, priming them for their solo runs, heck, when the new 52 was in rumor stages and the title Savage Hawkman had me nearly convinced that Carter's savagery was going to be due to the loss of Shira at the end of Brightest Day. Needless to say, that did not happen. While I still have very much enjoyed the new 52, I agree that this function is a complete loss of momentum for Hawkman, Firestorm, who had a fantastic cliffhanger in Black Brightest Day, Deadman, and even Hawk and Dove, all of whom have been built up to be feature star status by brightest, uh, Blackest Night and Brightest Day. Tellingly, three of those properties had launch titles which are now canceled, have two of them folded into team books, but without really getting much to do. So, uh, Deadman had a launch in DC Comics uh, Presents, but I at least... Uh, but at least found a niche in a team book. Wow. And then and Cisco comes in and says, uh, this is interesting. A good Neymar book right now is Exo Man of War. I don't read it, so I don't know. And Luke came back saying, holy crap, Cisco would write. The book is a perfect example of how to be a not nice guy as your lead, and it freaking rocks to boot. So I'll just chime in this shag personally. I thought the burn run on Neymar was actually very good as well. Uh, when he was like a corporate head, I really enjoyed the burn run, and then even the stuff that Jay Lee drew after that. I thought that was really good. Uh, we got an email from Tim Wallace. He commented on the Firestorm Friend Killer Frost Black Man episode. Baltimore, he's talking about Baltimore Comic Con as well. It's a blast. I'm friends with a lot of the con staff and have been volunteering there as a staff member for years. And I can tell you one of the goals has always been to put on a show that puts comics ahead of anything else. Just like Rob, I was disappointed that Parrot Cullens didn't show. I was looking forward to chatting with him again about Blue Beetle and got some of my books signed. Just as disappointed that Rob didn't mention that he'd seen me or given my, me my phone pen. <laughs> uh, is it is because I am too a fan of Peter David's Aquaman, isn't it? I'm feeling blue now, like my Beetle. Sorry, Tim, I always leave somebody out. I uh, when Every time I always write and say, oh, I ran into so-and-so, so I always forget somebody. Nothing personal. I, I deeply apologize. It was great to meet you uh, for the first time. Related to Paris Collins, I shouldn't tell this because it's probably not meant for public consumption, but I will anyway. When I took a tour of the con floor with Paul Kupperberg, I remarked that I kept wanting to find Paris Collins, but he wasn't there. And Kupperberg goes, Paris Collins missing a deadline. What a surprise. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, I was like, okay, there's some stories there. So, all right. Clearly, yeah, there's some, there's some feelings there. But you know what? His art's always worth the wait. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, if you're an editor, not necessarily, but... I guess okay. so, yeah. Uh, Ange made some comments, because I talked about, um, you know, the various Villains Month books, and I said I like Deadshot. And so he says, I have to disagree with Shag about the Deadshot issue. I much prefer his original origin of a rich socialite boy raised in a crazy family with a penchant for being a marksman. If you haven't ever read the Austin Drew McDonald Deadshot miniseries from the 80s, I highly recommend it. Now, I will say, Ange, I have read that. And I agree, I do prefer that version of Deadshot from Suicide Squad and his Death Wish. And uh, that great miniseries that you're referring to was really, really good. I, I'm all on board with that version of Deadshot. Now, step away from that and just compare the various New 52 Villains Month books, and I felt like Deadshot was a strong one of that pack. So that's kind of my, my take on that. 
Anyway, so my real reason for writing is about the reading comics in public discussion. Uh, just, just for you guys a callback so you remember, this is Shag talking. I said that I get a little nervous reading comics in public, and it's something I need to get over. So that's what he's talking about. Uh, like Rob, I have very little opportunity to read comics in public. But since becoming a dad and especially raising three daughters, I've gone out of my way to show them that I'm happy with who I am, and I have little use for people who would judge me superficially. So while I might not be reading comics, I, they, they see me out in public wearing Supergirl and Red Lantern shirts. They bought me a Superman lunch bag, which I use when I pack a lunch. They bought me a Superman tote bag to bring to the comic store so I don't use plastic bags. I walk with them proudly. My office has original comic art on the wall, and everyone in my office knows I have a huge comic book geek, sci-fi, etc. geek. I let them know that if someone thinks less of me because of the shirt I wear because of the comics, that isn't my problem. It's theirs. As a result, they don't hide that they like comics as one of their hobbies. They're ju- um, they are just as likely to wear a Wonder Woman shirt as they are to wear something from the Justice. And I love oh, Justice being the girl store Justice, in case you don't have kids. And I love ah, hearing I didn't know what that they- meant. <laughs> yeah, there's a store called Justice, and my daughter loves it. So anyway, ah, okay. um, and I love hearing when they say they needed to join... I'm sorry. And I love hearing... When they say they needed to join into a bus conversation about Green Lantern, quote, the Rocketeer to their friends, etc. <laughs> That's great. Um, now, I don't want to say I'm defending myself, but just a little more explanation. By the way, I have made an effort to read comics in public recently since this last conversation. I've been reading my trade paperbacks in public, so there you have it. I'm making some progress. Now, as far as comic book T-shirts... My wife actually at one point forbid me from buying more comic book T-shirts because I had in excess of 40. Oh, my uh, she, God. She said, you have too many. I don't even have so, 40 T-shirts, period. So I proudly wear comic book T-shirts as often as I can. In fact, now that um, I, haven't talk, I don't talk about my work very often, but I work from home now. I don't go to an office anymore. I wear comic book T-shirts every day now. So, And I drive my daughter to school, and I get out and I walk her into the school. So I am walking past all these suburban housewives and, and moms who are incredibly judgmental and are having um, pampered chef parties or whatever. And uh, <laughs> I'm wearing my superhero T-shirts, and they see me every day. And about half of them actually give me weird looks, and I don't care. So uh, I'm representing there. Back when I did work in an office, I had a I had a couple uh, like nicer statues in there. I had a Daredevil statue, a Magneto statue, a Doctor Who statue. So I do represent uh, as often as I can, and I am trying to make an effort to read comics in public when I have the opportunity. So there we go. Uh, I guess I should mention now, conver- conversely, now that I do work in an office, uh, part of my uh, desk is covered with uh, Aquaman statues. I should mention that. <laughs> There you go. Now, you work in a pretty cool office, though. I, have I do. That's true. Yeah, it's a very small office. It's not an office office. So, yeah. Everybody, mine, everybody, mine. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, everybody's. We're, everybody uh, decorates their things in very uh, um, particular ways. So, yeah, it's not a surprise. Mine was a very, very stuffy, uptight office. Yeah, so. no, we're not, we're not like that. I, so. I was a rebel. Yeah. Uh, Heard from Keith Singe. He said, uh, I haven't had a chance to read 99% of Peter David's Aquaman run, but I was never a fan of the hook hand. I felt he was really 90-ified with that look, especially the one metal arm shirt. But I did like Peter David, that Peter David gave Aquaman's powers a bit of a boost. And then he goes on to bash on Namor a bit, and he points out that Namor got taken out by a whale in DC vs. Marvel in 1996. Yes, he did. (laughs) Written by Peter David, so... Yeah. Uh, we got an email from Earth to Chris, as always. I'll skip down to the end. He says, it's funny that Rob mentioned how the Who's Who show seems more popular than the show it's spun off from. Do you hear the cries, gentlemen? The throngs of people chanting outside your windows? The people want Who's Who. Come on, guys, give us a fix. It's nearly a month overdue. Uh, and so that's why we fixed. That's why we did another Who's Who last week so soon after we're doing the previous one because we wanted to catch up. So, yes, we did hear 
the roar of the crowd, Chris, and, and we responded by giving you more Tuesday. I don't think we've ever been a month behind. I mean, we were a couple been, of weeks behind. Yeah, yeah, maybe it was like six weeks in between episodes, yeah, or whatever. Like but yeah. but here, here's the thing: the Who's Who podcast are sort of like a special treat. Um, Girl Scout cookies. Girl Scout cookies are phenomenally successful. They sell a crap ton of those little cookies, and one of the big reasons is it's a supply and demand issue. They're only available certain weeks of the year, and so you really, really, really want them. However, if they were sold all year round in the grocery store, nobody would really care. I mean, no one no one talks about um, Keebler fudge stripe cookies because they're always there. The fact that Girl Scout cookies are only around for a short period of time, it's a big deal. So who's who in frequency actually makes it more special. <laughs> at least that's what so, we're telling ourselves. I am. All right. He also came up and talked about Killer Frost. So Killer Frost comic actually sounded like a good read, and Shag's recap and enthusiasm for it made me consider that this version of the character could support a miniseries at least. So true. Uh, not keen on overheroizing. Is that a word? Uh, villains like Black Mana, Black Mana. John seems to like doing that. I think it stems from his success in developing the rogues gallery in his very well done flash run. But I personally think he sometimes goes overboard, making them too relatable and sympathetic. I haven't read the issue, so I haven't really, uh, I can't really comment on it specifically, but I can see a common thread in that much of John's work where he seems to build up the villains at what I feel is the expense of the heroes. Dude, you nailed it on the head. Uh, Jeff had a very good run on Flash. It was exceptional, and part of it was part of what made it so good was the Rogues. And you're right; he's hung up on bad guys, no doubt about it. I, I think he feels like the hero is judged by the quality of their bad guys, so he spends too much time on the bad guys. I think you're you're dead right. And Michael Bailey says something similar in a little while. So, all right, uh, we got a comment from uh, someone named Agent Daniel. I think he might be a new commenter. He says, uh, "I get you were not a fan of Black Mana." But you said nothing about our two villainous ships passing in the night. You're right. I didn't. I uh, thought we did. I thought we mentioned that. Maybe. I, I don't, you know. Okay. All right. <laughs> they just walked by each other. It wasn't particularly significant. That's why I didn't bother to mention it. Uh, Michael Bailey he sent us a couple different things. One was an email. He wrote, hey, guys, in the last episode, Rob put it out there that he was interested in hearing stories about comics while got on, while got on vacation. We got while on vacation. Excuse me. I have two stories to share. First was the summer of 1988. My grandparents pecked me and my cousin and took us both to Niagara Falls. To prepare for the trip, to prepare the trip, I brought some comics, one of which was the first issue of Who's Who Update 88, which Woo-hoo! I read a thousand times on the trip there and back, <laughs> but they didn't plan properly ended up not having enough to read. I also got Adventures of Superman number 444, which was the second chapter in the Supergirl saga. While in Canada, I had some extra money, and on the trip to a mall, I bought my first and only book that had the Canadian price and prominence on the cover. Was this an extra issue of Superman? Batman? Had to be the Flash or X-Men, right? Nope. It was Cops number two. <laughs> Central <laughs> Organization or the Central Organization for Police or oh, something like that? Special. He gets to it right here. He says, oh, that's, yeah? okay. that's right. A bunch of comics to choose from. And I get one of the last licensed property books DC did in the 80s based on a mediocre animated series. I think mediocre is generous, Mike. Uh, Central Organization of Police Specialists fighting crime in a future time. Yeah. <laughs> I was 12. What did I know? The second story takes place during the same summer. For three years, starting in 86 and ending in 88, my family would speak a week, spend a week in Ocean City, Maryland, at my aunt's condo. One of the traditions was to hit the boardwalk and imagine my surprise when I found a little shop that sold old comics. Oh, man, I would have loved to find a place like that. Wait a minute. A boardwalk shop that sells comics. Is that the same place from Lost Boys? <laughs> it might, yeah, it might have been. Uh, well, so I've never seen Corey Feldman and Michael Bailey in the same place. Well, several years old, <laughs> but still. 
I snapped up four of them. Superman number two, Who's Who number 18. It came with the Who's Who. Legends number four, and a fourth one that I have since forgotten. Probably Cops number three. I devoured the Who's Who issue as it was one of the first issues of that particular series I had managed to get my hands on. I had read the two updates, but this was the classic series, and I remember falling in love with Power Girl based on her entry. Yeah, her entry. Legends, yeah, Legends, <laughs> Legends number four was a lot of fun, too, as I only had ever read issues five of that series, so here was another piece of the puzzle. That was so important to me at the time. I was still only a year or so in the Clickman comics. Anyway, that's it for now. Hope this didn't bore you too much. Eh, eh. Fan, the wave, fan the wave and ride the flame and all that, Mike Bailey. I love those stories. I love hearing stuff like that. So anybody wants to share them, please send them in. I love I love hearing stuff like that. A couple of quick thoughts. Cops number two. I'm pretty sure that was some of Bart Sears' earliest published work. Oh, so. Bart Sears. Yeah, My yeah. Former instructor. Was he really? Yeah, he taught it well. Okay, I, he didn't teach me. I didn't have him, but he did teach at the Cupid School when I was there and my other – classmates had him but i certainly spent time talking to him and stuff he liked uh, he, back then he liked to uh, get nude a lot okay we need to do an episode where we talk about that we can't we don't have time right now yeah but i, know. I, got, I gotta just, hear more just about throwing it out there anyway we got an email from mike gillis he says i have to admit i feel a bit of remorse for the flack that rob's getting about the peter david run for aquaman being that in my emails what prompted him to vote to voice that he didn't like it but i wonder if the sea king death doesn't have another unintended consequence of the aquaman character I really enjoyed John's run on Aquaman. I think he's done a lot to break a lot of the misconceptions that fans have of him as being weak or useless. But while Aquaman has been a cool, confident, and powerful hero in his own title, this cannot be said the way John uses him in Justice League. Aside from throwing up Atlantis and him subduing the Cheetah, the character mostly just stands around and does nothing while he hangs around the Justice League. I would argue that it's far more important for him to look cool and powerful when he's standing next to Batman and Superman than he does in his own title. He needs to prove that he's their equal and a contributing part of the team, and the Sea King dying in a second panel only reinforces a lot of the people's notions that the character is weak and useless. Yep. I think there's some, yep. absolutely something to that. I really do. Yeah, he, he has not had anything to do in Justice League. You know, he get big thing in Throne of Atlantis, but outside of that, he does just stand around in like one or two panels with his little trident kind of reacting, and that's it. Yep. I uh, heard from our good buddy Jack Dower. He, he was able to slip out a message, um, probably in a bottle from the Insane, Insane Asylum. Um, part of it here says, Black Mana S- Skipper is right. It is mostly just a rehash of Forever Evil Number 1. I liked it a lot anyway. I thought it added depth to Manta and showed just how crazy he is, and I know crazy. If I were going to no prize the death by coin scene, I mentioned there's this coin that he kills somebody with. I'm like, how do you kill someone with a coin? It's a, I would say that it has sharp edges because the crime syndicate intent, intended the coins to double as weapons when they gave them out. After all, uh, d- villains by definition are a violent lot of heroes, or are a violent lot. They're violent. Anyway, uh, what do you think? <laughs> then he said, uh, Shag, now that the master of the – talking about Slipknot here. Now that the master of organic rope has been introduced into the new 52, how would you introduce the most annoying Firestorm adversary since Doreen Day? Oh, no, no, no. How would you introduce Doreen Day? How would you introduce <laughs> the most annoying Firestorm adversary, Doreen Day? Um, simple. Uh, she was in New York City um, during the throne of Atlantis, and uh, she died. So <laughs> – <laughs> Rob, uh, Commander Kelly, it was argued that the Peter David run put Aquaman in a bad place. I think the writer called him a rageaholic. What do you think uh, of where the Johns run leaves the character, and could you compare the two? I think you've done that. Yes, I think so. Okay, fair enough. Uh, thank you, uh, Jack. I appreciate the letter. That's great. I love this. P.S. I have no geek shame about reading comics in public. I would do it in a heartbeat if the darn orderlies weren't always taking them away from me. I hey, put down, hey, put down my Flash 20. 
I really love how Jack has just run with that. That was like a flippant comment I made, and like he's used it in every email since. I really do appreciate it. It wasn't a flippant comment, man. You went on for like five minutes on Did how I? he. You talked about that scene from Halloween. Oh, that's with right. Patients yeah, that's, right. that's Jack, okay. and it's like, God. I insult so many people, it's hard to remember. Why do people still keep writing in? They're just going to get beat up like this next guy. Uh, David uh, Guter- Gutier. Guterres. Get a new name, David. All right? Nice. That's a problem. Very nice. Uh, David. David's on my list. Because uh, he and I have been emailing back and forth, and he has unfortunately reignited my passion for Star Trek uh, original novels. And darn you, David, I had broken this habit for a while now, and next thing I know, I'm downloading Star Trek Vanguard Volume 1 to my nook, and I'm like, what just happened? I just spent money and I'm reading a Star Trek book again. Curse you. I should, I'm supposed to be reading Who's Who. It's your fault. It's David's fault. That who's who's late, everybody. I read those emails between you guys back and forth, and after a while, I was like, I don't know what the hell anybody's talking about. I just gave up. <laughs> I actually took the thread out and put it in my personal email and emailing him, and I don't think he's getting them because shags in the name that ends up in people's spam a lot. So anyway, uh, guys, that's great news about the Jerry Lewis book. If it had some Bob Oscar art in it, then you already got a customer. He's an unsung, amazing artist who drew women like no one else. I think we're discovering that at who's who, yeah. <laughs> Since you uh, at uh, since you said you liked the How You Got Hooked stories, I thought I'd share how I ended up loving Who's Who in DC Comics. I grew up a Marvel kid. My dad bought my comics. He grabbed a random, he grabbed random books and gave them to me. One day I got the flu and my mom said she'd give me a comic. I remember a strange encyclopedic book from DC with a smiling Aquaman on the cover for a whopping cost of a dollar. A whole 40 cents or so, more than most of the comics. I decided to milk my illness and ask for this expensive tome. I tore into it and I got confused. Who's Who issue had Aquaman? Him I knew. But who the hell was it? the Superman 2? And why was Green Lantern wearing a garish costume and called Alan Scott? What's an all-star squadron and why are Hawkman and Hawkgirl sticking their tongues out at me? And who is the first Adam? And why was the Adam I knew dressed like a barbarian? Needless to say, these questions led to a quest that I led um, that led to more DC books. I bought Who's Who I bought the Who's Who I could afford and then moved on to the main titles. Thirty years later, I am still reading comics. Awesome. Thank you yeah, for that. Yeah, that's great. I love that. You bastard. All right. Um, Luke moving Jack, on. Luke Jackanani wrote, he left a comment on Firestorm. He said, uh, I'm right there with Rob when it comes to the crush at comic conventions. My personal favorite show, Heroes Con, again with the Heroes Con, I think he's got money in this, has not succumbed to the crush yet because it remains fairly focused on comics as well as being family friendly. So the show has not yet been overrun with hipsters or semi-professional cosplayers. I went to a show in New York back in 2003 at the Paramount Theater. I could have sworn it was called the New York Comic Con at the time, but I can't confirm that. The Paramount was a great venue, but the show could have never grown there. I'm really familiar I'm really familiar with the Javits Center from years ago going to the International Auto Show with my father. To fill that space with the crush is absolutely amazing to me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, not for the faint of heart. I just have to mention here, he said that uh, Shag said his old job involved planning boring trade shows. To you, I present a show my friend Adam used to attend, The World of Concrete. Um, to, to, be, to be exact, Luke, uh, World of Concrete is probably about seven times more exciting than the trade shows I manage. Um, and I don't mean the subject matter, I mean the people there. Anyway, uh, he said, also, Shaggy, if you hated this guy who bullied you about the comic, why do you have him as your friend on Facebook? And there's actually several people that ask me, why am I connected with him on Facebook? I just want to be very specific, folks. I'm not. What happened was he came up as a someone you may know. Right, because you've got mutual friends, right. Exactly. And his profile picture was that of him with Captain America girls. That's what led me down that that rabbit hole of hatred. 
So, uh, he's, I love his sign off. He goes, P.S. In the future, please sign off all episodes with God have mercy on your children and your wife. <laughs> uh, Martin Stein uh, returns, which is our buddy Robert Gross, was nice enough to uh, write in. He also had some comments about that bully thing, so I'm not going to get into that. Uh, next uh, up, ben, ben Gray. Ben Gray says, comment on Firestorm fan. Thank you, gents, for your response to my poorly parsed thoughts. was very kind. Quote, Benton ran over that topic and salted the earth behind it. Unquote. Ha, that is, <laughs> ha, that is well put, Rob. I like that. If only I could salt the fields of Pad's run. Thanks for, uh, the, thanks for the thoughts on Firestar Mission, Shag. I've noted them down at him. Stash away for when I return to my project. Benton works on lots of uh, RPGing stuff. Um, he wrote, on another note, my comics finally arrived, so at last I'm caught up on my Aquaman books. I've gone back and listened to your coverage thereof, and I found my thoughts running more or less in line with y'all's in regard to the highs and lows of these tales. The big difference is, I don't mind Atlantis. Oh, he's not going to like this episode. It's an integral part of who <laughs> Aquaman is and what he is about, at least when it's done well. The trouble is, Atlantis should be a feature part of the time, not the sole focus for several extended storylines. Ah, now we're back on track. Moderation in all things is a valid motto for storytelling as well as life. I do agree that it's time to get Arthur out of the water for a bit, but I hate for Atlantis to sink out of sight permanently. Though it's quite unlikely to happen, I'd love to see New Venice make a return. Me too. I'll settle settle for a return to the world couple's previous stomping grounds. Either way, it is time to make Aquaman a superhero again. Let him foil some robberies, defeat some crooks, fight some supervillains. Let him save the world. Let's see some more lighthearted adventures. Sadly, it doesn't seem that is likely given our cliffhanger ending. Give me Sub Diego, man. Yeah, I'd be good. I'd be all right with that too. You know, Aquaman needs to get out of the water. Don't you think his fingers are getting pruning or something? Uh, anyway, the <laughs> stories have been good on the whole, and I certainly have enjoyed them. Yet they are mar- marred by the same flaw as all these new Fifty Two books. They simply have no joy, no real warmth. The stories are all in a terrible rush to get somewhere, a destination they never really seem to reach, and there is just no room for anything but melodrama and action. I like both of those elements, but they are the meat and potatoes of comic book fare, but a few breaths here and there for something brighter would be good. I'm reminded of the small, still moments on Batman TAS or Superman TAS and JLU, the little glimpses of character that showed us the humanity and humor of the heroes and their world, that built friendships and expanded on more than just the plot. I absolutely agree with that, Benton. I really do. Uh, you again, you've run over that and salted the earth behind you. But once again, well done. <laughs> uh, he felt the Black Mana book was also kind of weak. Uh, it goes on here. I like this bit about Tula. Tula, Tula, man. I miss the groovy chick from the classic book. <laughs> Does everyone have to be an assassin these days? How do we make character X relevant and interesting? Ooh, let's make him or her an assassin secret agent. That way they can be all dark and dangerous. Uh, that's gonna. That well's going dry. Everyone is brutal. Train killer. Everyone's a brutal train killer. Mara, Tula, Orm, everybody. Okay, we get it. Why not try something different? I'd love to see Tula develop a personality to become Aqua Girl. That would seem a long. That does seem a long way off. Like y'all said, I would also like like to see uh, poor Lorna return. Man, praise to be Lauren. Lorna needs to come back. <laughs> she like pretty much everything else in the book had finally hit her stride and become a real in- really interesting when Tad's Aquaman run had canceled. For that matter, I miss Garth too. The Aquaman, the Aqua family in general, is a concept that would do wonders for this book. I think I stole your bit. Sorry about that. That's all right. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> uh, Diablo Frank, we heard from him uh, on the uh, Ocean Master uh, episode. Uh, I had a fairly livid Twitter rant about the whole fake geek person thing a few weeks back. The truth is, the whole Revenge of the Nerds scene is over. Everyone is a fanboy. Let's all drink Coca-Cola and sing Kumbaya together. As much as we may wish to keep the bloodlines pure and elite, our uh, our sisters can now intermarry with people who think sci-fi original programming is actual science fiction. Comic book fans have replaced gay cousins as something every family has. (laughs) Oh, my God. And is overcompensatingly proud... um, and they want to hook you up with them. 
Uh, Secret Society Supervillains was originally going to be collected as a showcase presents. I talked about Secret Society Supervillains. By the way, folks, just so you know, yes, I, I, I talked about episode or volume one, and then Rob and I talked about volume two for a while, thinking like theorizing what it should be. Yeah, it's already printed. It's out there. <laughs> and it's on the way to me now. Uh, anyway, he says Secret Society Supervillains was originally going to be collected as a so- showcase presents. That was canceled, and solicitation, solicitation text was recycled whole for the full color hardcover. I ordered it under those terms only for the book to be made returnable when DC only collected half of the promised run. So I was ticked that I didn't order the second volume to complete the set, and it's not like they bothered to color the cavalcade or amazing world material anyway. I have most of the run in single issues anyway. Well, aren't you just an elitist bastard, Frank? Good for you. Uh, Michael Bailey was kind enough to also give me a link to where I could buy the Secret Society Supervillains Volume 2. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm glad to see there's a lot of fans out there for it. I have to say, though... <sighs> It's not as great as I want it to be. Is uh, like I've compared it to a lot of other kind of like bombastic sort of uh, uh, silvery or bronze age stuff. This stuff's not quite there. Now I'm hoping the second volume will be. So we'll find out. Heard from Little Russell Burbage from Dakota City. He said, uh, "By the way, Jerry Lewis's comic started out as the adventures of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis right, when they broke right, up. Right. When they broke up, Jerry got the comic." <laughs> Tim Wallace said. Uh, he said there. Uh, he just added that there's two Aquaman figures in the DC Action League line. Those little guys that we talked about that I said were adorable. He said the Brave and the Bold Aquaman and Flashpoint Emperor Aquaman. There was a Flashpoint Emperor Aquaman in yes. the action. Yeah, there was. It's absolutely Completely wild. Bewildering. Yeah. Heard from Luke Dobb, the most dastardly creative man in, in the world. Uh, he said, I thoroughly enjoyed Peter David's writing on Aquaman. I started collecting comics regularly in high school, and this uh, at, at the. And this hit the shells just in time. I was already an Aquaman fan at this point, but this solidified it. I still remember seeing the first issue and being extremely excited for it. The Aquaman, This Aquaman incarnation left a permanent mark on the character via the Justice League animated series. The episode where Aquaman sacrifices his hand to save his son is powerful. It continues to rank as one of my favorites from the entire series. Ironically, I prefer the animated series' origin of Aquaman's hook to Peter David's. Either way, David's uh, run on the dot was a dynamic divergence for the character, which, if nothing else, helps us to appreciate the return to center. Boy, he is dead right. The animated series... This is Shagna. The animated series version of Aquaman's hook hand is really Yeah, really that's good. good. If you're going to do it, that's the way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he's also very complimentary about my book, Hey Kids Comics, so thank you very much for that, Luke. I appreciate it. And finally, we've got an email from Hector Negrete. He says, I'm running behind with the FW podcast, but I've been wanting to give you a few words on things I wanted to point out. Like comic book joy and nostalgia. Maybe a lot has been said about this in the past month, but I've been waiting uh, to have the time to write about it. It's clear we all have to go back to our comic book joy because from time to time we need to revisit what got us into them. But on one end, I do understand what Rob feels many of the new stuff, much of the new stuff on Aquaman. I do understand what Rob feels about on the new stuff on Aquaman, but on the other, I also understand what the Aquaman Shrine readers are expecting from a site devoted to that character. This is a hobby, and as such, you need to do what you like, but keep in mind what people may like to read. Yeah, it's true. We're still working on that balance. Still, still working on it. Uh, and then he has some nice comments for the uh, DC, DC Heroes RPG episode. Did you want to read that, Jack? Sure. Uh, RPG has been... RPGs have been important in my life. Actually, I started playing when I was 12. Obviously, my first game was D&D, 
that uh, by that time I played was uh, was first edition. GURPS was also part of the games I played during high school until I found out Vampire the Masquerade and the whole other games from White Wolf at college. During this time, I was also got to play Star Wars under the West End game system. Woohoo! And of course, DC Heroes. Woohoo! My party, uh, unfortunately, wasn't fa- much fond of the gaming system Mayfair offered, and we only played it two or three times. Boo! Actually, my playing mates were obsessed with the D&D system, and later on, in later years, would do the same with the D20 system. I really enjoyed it, although, as you were saying, the natural impulse to go kill everyone, as it was in DD, is very hard to overcome. My character was a Green Lantern, and that was, and it was all alone on Earth. Uh, he goes on to talk about Pete, Jeff Johns and Peter David. Um, it's a popular topic. Interesting. You know, it's, you know, I gotta say before I start reading this, there really have been a lot of varied opinions on this. I think it's probably been one of the most healthy and respectable um, discussions. That's, that's happened on the show uh, because it seems to be represented on both sides. There's no real nasty name calling that you know somebody on this show is famous for, and um, I, th- I think it's been a, a good balanced discussion. I think it's been very healthy. I'm looking forward to us doing a Peter David episode. So, uh, although Peter David's runs are obvious, I never felt jo- uh, John's was mocking of Peter David's run. Uh, and I'm going to say here, I still like more. The Peter Davis run than the current John's run. Actually, I was beginning to feel John's was doing nothing with the character and was losing its way in the storyline. The other's interlude was an example of that. John's run was fun. It made the '70s Aquaman have a new take on on badassness. But David did it first, and almost 20 years later, the first five issues of David's Aquaman blow my mind. It's a shame John's is leaving the title, but I started to feel we needed a change on the book. Keep up the great work on the podcasts, Hector. All right. Thank you very much, Hector. And that is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Fire and Water Podcast. Uh, you can follow our Tumblr, which is fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. You can send us an email at firewaterpodcast at comcast.net. And you can find us all at aquamantrine.net, which is on Facebook and Twitter. You can find Firestorm Fan at firestormfan.com. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Yep. Google Plus. Google Plus. Friends, uh, Friendster, written on the backs of highway signs, all sorts of fun stuff. Absolutely. Bath- bathroom walls. Bath- rest areas. Bathroom walls, rest areas. It's great. So uh, I guess that's it, right? Are we done? Fan the flame and ride the wave. Bye, guys. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. Stand for truth and justice and see on land and air. Firestorm and Aquaman, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah! the director who brought you Smokey and the Bandit, Hooper, Cannonball Run, comes the ultimate spectacle. Megaforce, an elite compact fighting unit armed with the most sophisticated weapons ever seen on a movie screen. The mission to preserve freedom and justice and battle the forces of evil. The good guys always win. Even in the 80s. Megaforce. 